The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovito.com. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we want to hear your voice this morning. So we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak your word to us, um, that you would give us hearts as well to hear, um, to comprehend and respond to what you bring to us. We pray this for your glory, Lord, but also that through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, Covenant Presbyterian Church is a church associated with other churches in a denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA. Uh, But we've not always been PCA. Uh, CPC began in 1969 as a member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, uh, the RPCES. This is fun, isn't it? which then merged with the PCA in 1982, and that's how we became PCA. Now, the RPCES, uh, there will be a test on this, by the way, at the end, Um, uh, traces its roots backwards. We were for a period of time, it was for a a brief period, known as the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but not the same one that exists today that you might be familiar with. And the Evangelical Presbyterian Church was a church that grew out of the Bible Presbyterian Church, which was birthed by a split in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1937. At the time, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was only a year old, but they couldn't hold on to their unity. Now, I call all of this the split peas. Um, Now, that split in 1937, uh, I understand, was caused because of several reasons. One was an inability for those involved in that brand new denomination to agree on how to handle things like smoking and drinking. The other was that one of them was committed to premillennialism and the other was committed, and others within that church were committed to amillennialism and they couldn't find a way to coexist and so they split. And it's quite possible that you have absolutely no idea what I just said, and that's okay. It has to do with how one understands the language of a thousand years in the text that was just read. And I share this history with you for a couple of reasons. First, just to remind us that the disagreements about this has been, have been so deep that they have, it has literally split churches. And secondly, to tell you, I'm not going to spend any time trying to address those things. So, you know, if you're disappointed in that, if you came try, uh, hoping to get a full explanation of what millennial position I hold, there, you can, you know, cl- there's a full refund um, for your admission price on your way out. Now, I have a perspective. Obviously, I have a perspective, and that will become clear soon enough. But the American obsession uh, with this has always puzzled me. Um, because I don't believe that these were the deepest concerns of the Apostle John, nor were they the deepest concerns of those to whom he was writing, nor are they the concerns of most of us. The concerns for time and 
the condition of Jesus' return is a distraction that Jesus tried, apparently unsuccessfully, to redirect. But I, th I think it's clear that the concern for John's readers had to do with other things. Elizabeth has already alluded to them. There was a concern regarding the fate of their loved ones whom they had lost to death, particularly those whom they had lost to a martyr's death. There was concern about the fate of this church it being so small and so new as it was meeting formidable opposition. Would it survive? And then there is the abiding question, the continuing question, the always question of evil itself. What is its future? Now, I'm pretty sure that these were the concerns uh, that were on the table because an apostle does not write to answer questions that no one is asking. And these are the questions that he's answering, questions which touch us as well. They touch it, it, questions that touch our hearts and not just our minds. So I don't want us to get distracted. God is speaking here to our deepest concerns and because of what God speaks, Christian, you can rest. It's your mental and emotional and spiritual rest that matters here. And I remind you, as we've been working our way through this book, it is an illustrated book. God is now communicating to us with pictures. Some of us understand books better when there are pictures. Well, he is giving us pictures. And the first, is, the first communicates here that God speaks promise regarding Christians who die. And when we get to the first verse, we see, then I saw. The same language is used in verse 4. Then I saw. Then. Then. That word trips many of us up. Uh, the word is meant to communicate the order of the visions that John sees, not necessarily a historical, sequential development of, of events, Right? It's not necessarily you know, saying this will happen and then this will happen and then this will happen. No, that's not what John's saying. John's saying, I saw this, then I saw this, then I saw this. Now, please accept a hokey illustration. But in 1977, I saw the first vision of a Star Wars universe. Literally, I'm that old. And then, you know, a few years later in 1980 and in 1983, there were further revelations, further visions. All right, we saw one, then we saw another, then we saw another. And then when was it? Uh, 1999. With Star Wars stuff, you got to get it right or you're going to take flack. In 1999, there was another one. So was this a further development sequentially, historically? No, this was another vision that is talking about things that happened back here. All right, we're getting a series of visions here from, from John. The sequence of John's visions may speak of events in chronological order, but they may not. The thens have to do with what he saw. We saw the same thing in, in chapter 19, verse 11, then I saw, verse 17, then I saw. Um, so time sequence, let's not get hung up over time sequence. It's not as critical as the events portrayed Events that involve the final destinies, particularly of all it is, all that is, that opposes God's work and his people. Chapter 19 particularly dealt with the beast and the prophet. Chapter 20 with the devil and evil itself. 
So keeping all of that in mind, let's look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That has to be one of the longest verses in the Bible. It's like a thousand words long. Now, several things seem to be clear to me. First, note that this is a scene in heaven, not a scene on earth. John is seeing things happen in heaven, not things happening on earth. How do you know that? Where are souls? When he speaks of souls, he's speaking of those who have been, had their heads cut off. He's not talking about embodied souls. He's talking about souls. Their abode is in heaven. Okay, that's significant to keep in mind. And then we read here that they reign for a thousand years. Or, as we could very well say, a vast but definable expanse of time. Numbers in Revelation are symbolic. They're meant to be understood symbolically. The significance of a thousand is that it is both long and definable. It has a beginning and an end. That is distinguished from eternity. And that's the point. This is an extended period of time which has a beginning and an end, a frame of reference that is distinguishable from eternity. We'll come back to that. Now, the concern for John's readers is not with the specifics of time as much as it is with these souls. These are so, you know, he's writing to the living about the dead. And the concern just shows up in, 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 in other passages of Scripture, in the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 1 Thessalonians as well. Concern about if we are looking forward to the resurrection of the dead at some time in the distant future and a believer dies now, what happens to him? Where is he? What kind of hope can we have for them? How is that distinguishable from what we see in verse 5, the rest of the dead? So there's a question here about those who die in Christ. And those who die in Christ, we are told by John here, is there is a special blessedness reserved for them alone. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And again, a passage like this, if we get lost in the woods, stirs up all kinds of other controversy. Nowhere else do we read of a first resurrection, second resurrection, first death, second death. But I think if you just pull back from it for a bit, you know, we who are appointed to die once, as Hebrews tells us, uh, and keep that in mind, we can understand what's being said. The ones who die before the coming of Jesus, they die but once, but are immediately taken into the presence of Jesus. There is a resurrection to come, a bodily resurrection. But those who die in Christ, you know, it is as if it's a first resurrection. As far as their experience goes, they will reign with him from that point forward. 
And then in his return, when their bodies are raised as well with this Christian, you can be comforted that your Christian friends and your Christian family who pass before the coming of Jesus are not nowhere. They are with Jesus. They are blessed and holy because they share in that first resurrection, not of the body, but of the spirit. And that's the point. They've not fallen into some kind of blank, nameless existence, but are with Christ and have no fear of future judgment. They're blessed in the presence of the reigning Christ for a definable but extended period of time, a thousand years. And there's beauty for this and for a church that was getting their bearings and had suffered much. But we do understand it comes with a caution. It's a caution that we all need to hear and ponder Uh, Verse 5, when we eventually get to it, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Okay. Dying itself doesn't bring the blessing. It is dying in Christ that is in view. Dying itself does not bring the blessing. I just finished a a book, and then Barb and I watched the movie version of my name, I mean, a, a man named Ov or Ova. Um, He's an older man who has lost his way because his wife has died, and he is functioning with this idea that if he were to die, he could be with his wife. It's a wonderful sentiment. It's a sentiment borne by many, uh, and it's a great setup for the novel, but it misses the point that's central to anyone's hope of immediately going into a conscious future is our relationship with Christ. Your relationship with Christ defines that. It is union with Christ that allows us to participate in His life, not just being human. Union with Christ through faith, that is what promises blessing and presence. Blessing, the blessing of the presence of Christ. What you make of Christ makes all the difference here. Now, this is for you to ponder and you to think about and you to consider what your relationship with Christ is. My caution, though, of last week is still relevant. Keep your eyes on your own plate. Don't underestimate the mercy that God might show to others whose hearts you do not know. Do not lose yourself in those kinds of worries and concerns, but look to your own heart and look to the assurance that those who love Jesus and die before He comes most certainly now in the present, have blessedness. And concerning them, your heart can rest. They live with the reigning Christ. And we know this because the mouth of the Lord has spoken to it. God speaks promise regarding Christians who die. But what about the church that remains? And in this regard as well, these pictures speak. God speaks survival Prosperity, perhaps even, for the church that Jesus founded. Now, G- now John turns our attention to the time that, that long but define- when that long but definable period would end. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now verse 3, which we have not looked at, if you'll look at verse 3 as well, notice it says, 
that Satan had been bound and thrown into the pit and it was shut so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, that language has been taken very broadly, but I think we need to read it in the light of what we read down here in verse 7 and 8. Um, the context here simply meant that the devil's intention is to, to rally as many as possible uh, so that he might destroy the church, so that he might, whether through deception or whatever, deal a final death blow to the church. And that impulse, that inclination, had been restrained. But in this picture, it is happening. He gathers a massive army-like force, and then we read in verse 9, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now again, remember, this is a vision that John saw. This is a picture. This is an artistic presentation of a true reality. It is not necessarily intended to reflect an actual event that is yet to come. The picture here is of this massive, massed force of evil surrounding the people of God, surrounding the church of God with every intent of squashing it and destroying it to render the church impotent and non-existent. And this, was, this picture here is of all of that, that reality existing, primed, and ready to obliterate the church. The church often has felt that way. And you can understand how any congregation, any community, and especially that which existed in the first century of Christians, yes, the gospel had gone forth, yes, there had been remarkable things that had been seen, but nevertheless, the church was small and tiny compared to the greater vastness of the Roman Empire. But the point of what John is communicating here with a picture is the same that Jesus spoke when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hell shall not prevail. The devil will fail. The church will survive is what he is saying because look then at the tail end of verse 10. I mean at verse 9. So we have this massive army surrounding the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The enemies were obliterated. Ultimately, all of this great force uh, surrounding the church, geared to its destruction, is rendered impotent not by the power of the church, but by the power of the church's Redeemer and King. This has always been the church's encouragement captured, as you well know, in verse by Martin Luther, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. This is what God is telling us here. Not some picture of a, not, not some image of a, of, of, of a history yet to unfold but a reality that the church always needs to hold on to, that the church is the thing that will survive because it is the body of Christ, it is the church of Christ. He is her king. He is the one who reigns. And you need to know that, and you need to hold on to that. Why? Well, there will come a time, in the case of any of us and all of us, that we will think that we have hitched our wagon to the wrong horse, to a dying horse. All the hip folk around us are going a different direction. And we are being persuaded that, that everything that we have believed, we have, we have believed with futility. 
You know, and I could possibly join them if Jesus were still in the grave. But he's not. He is raised from the dead and he reigns. His is the victory over death that is the paradigm for what we see here. He who triumphed over death, his church will triumph over every opposition. Death cannot conquer them. The Lord of the church will not lose his church. I was told Friday about another uh, pastor who's made the judgment that what he has always believed and preached, he no longer believes. And such things are made to sound like an avalanche, to suggest like the rats are fleeing the sinking ship that is the church of Jesus. And maybe among a small sample size, that is America. But run that by flip for a moment. And the, what he sees around the world, the church will not die, the church cannot die, the church is not dying. Spoke with David Menzinger Thursday night, our missionary in Thailand. I said, David, what are you doing these days? He says, well, uh, primarily right now we're providing hospitality to a couple of dozen Mongolians. You know, we hear that and we say, hey, great, he's, he's you know, going to evangelize these heathen Mongolians. Uh, no, these Mongolians were gathered in Thailand to strategize where they might be most needed to carry the gospel to the unreached. These were missionaries. The words of Isaiah still are true. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The church is flourishing and will flourish until the end. And we know this not because of Flip's testimony and not because of a couple of dozen Mongolian missionaries. We know it because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it and it will come and it will be and in this we can rest. You see, dates and times are not John's concern, but the certainty of the hope of what God has spoken that there is promise regarding Christians who die and that there is survival promise for the church that Jesus founded and ultimately that God speaks destruction upon the one who intended his defeat. The final concern is what's going to happen to the devil himself? What is going to happen to evil? What will be the fate of the one who at one point slithered into the garden and set everything awry? That's not a question of idle or even theological curiosity, but it is one that is born out of very personal concern, especially those who find themselves deeply immersed in the evil effects of a fallen world, whether that's relationally, whether that is physical, whatever, whether that's political, whether it's falling in the middle of a war zone, and whether that war zone is in some political geography or in one's own home. Evil has created havoc for us all. Are we stuck with it? Will it always be? And what is answered here is answered with a decisive no. Verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, first of all, get rid of the cartoon imagery of hell being a place where the devil deliciously stands there tormenting people. Uh, you know, no. 
That may be fodder for some great humor, but it has no place in reality. Last week we soberly considered what final punishment might mean, what these pictures might convey, what the intention is that it is a terrible and final and unbearably, uh, a, a, an unbearable separation from God. And this is not something over which the devil happily rules. Rather, whatever hell is, Satan is consumed by it. He is the prime target of it. He falls into it. But the second and important and even more important thing to note is that there is a difference between a thousand years, which has been the, the refrain through this text, a thousand years, a thousand years, right? A definable but terminal period of time. A thousand years is different between that and forever and ever. The significance of a thousand, you know, 10 times 10 times 10, you know, completion multiplied is a very long but limited time. But that limitation does not exist in forever and ever. And that's the point of the numbers in this chapter. When evil is removed, it will be gone. Not for a very long time, but forever question of why God permits evil is one that has eluded the best theological minds, yet uh, you know, evil does serve God's glory in some way, but there's little we can say beyond that. I know that were it not for sin, I would not understand the mercy of God. There would be great swaths of his character that wouldn't be invisible to me if it weren't for the presence of my own sin and realizing that in mercy, he has given Christ that I might dwell with him. But that's very far from being the justification for, for mercy. We cannot, or for evil, we cannot say. But whatever is obscured in the midst of prehistory is not obscured in the future. Evil will end. Death will die. Sorrow and the cause for sorrow will sail into the sunset never to appear again because it will be gone. That that which once defiled the garden and has continued to plague us all since will be gone, destroyed, unable to do any more harm. There is a definite, final Endpoint after which forever and ever and ever and ever sorrow and suffering will cease along with its cause. Keeping with the theme of hokey Star Wars illustrations, in that first Star Wars movie, that is the one with Princess Leia sending a message to Obi-Wan Kenobi, it ends with all things being well. The Death Star is destroyed. Happiness is returned, except for the fact that Darth Vader goes spinning off into the, into the universe. He is not dead, and he is still out there, and he's a threat. <laughs> In Revelation 20, we are told nothing about Darth Vader spinning off into the universe so he can come back in the next couple of installments and wreak havoc. No, we read that he is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Oh yes, now we are still subject to his pestilence. The king has moved into our neighborhood and has claimed us as his subjects, but the enemy still lurks. He pesters, he causes grief, and so we sorrow. We grieve, we lament, 
but not as those without hope. God has spoken. He has spoken of the present and of the end, and the end is one of ultimate Sabbath rest. Evil and its Lord will not simply spin off into space, but will be exterminated because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has spoken promise regarding the Christians who die, survival for the church, and destruction upon evil. I, for one, tire of the prophets of doom. I tire of the books that, are, that, that, that spew forth uh, selling this or that solution to the imminent demise of the church. I tire of those of who peddle in fear, telling us that the church is dying, the church is hopelessly oppressed, the church is a single generation from being overthrown. The prophets of doom have a stake in such radical assertions. It's such news that sells books, generates clicks, and draws viewers. The good news is what needs to sell. It's the good news that gets us out of bed in the morning, into a world that we don't understand, but where we can tend our, going, our garden, knowing that those who have gone before us are nevertheless blessed and that the church we're a part of will never be overcome, and that the evil that is around us will come to an end. <laughs> I once sat in a dentist chair for four hours. It was the apocalypse. <laughs> How long? I cried out. No, I didn't. I couldn't. Uh. And yet even then, I knew it would come to an end, and things would be better on the other side. Christian, you can rest for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Father, we thank you for your word. I just ask God that you would take this word that you have preciously and, 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 and remarkably preserved for us and by your spirit, Lord, impress deeply upon our hearts that which is true and the parts that I've mangled, Lord, make them disappear in our minds quickly. And our desire, Lord, is that we would rest in you and that we would know your grace ever more richly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.